Over the past 200 years or so, we've allowed a political system to take hold in the U.S. where politicians are actually allowed to choose their voters almost as freely and easily as voters choose their politicians. Political gerrymandering, or drawing voting maps in a way that strongly benefits one particular side, has not only led to some bizarrely shaped congressional districts in America, it's also left many voters feeling like their voice has been diminished. But now, people like Katie Fahey are beginning to speak up. Gerrymandering makes it so that our votes don't count as much as they should. Launching a grassroots effort in the state of Michigan. And Paul Smith, an attorney who's argued several gerrymandering cases in front of the United States Supreme Court. People are extremely worried about their democracy, and so eventually that has to translate into a solution. Both of these individuals continue to speak out on the issue at both the state and federal level, and today they're speaking with us. I'm David Abair, and on this episode of Deep Dive with Laura Arnold, Cheating Between the Lines, the high cost of political gerrymandering and how we might be able to pull ourselves out of this mess. So, with that as the backdrop, here's Laura Arnold and the latest Deep Dive conversation. Hello, and welcome to Deep Dive. Our topic today is gerrymandering. We have this whole wide, hot mess to deal with due to former governor of Massachusetts, Elbridge Gerry, who in 1812 approved a redistricting map for the state of Massachusetts. And this map created an electoral advantage for Republicans and created these weirdly shaped districts. And so at the time, a political cartoon noted these very interestingly shaped districts and noted that one of them, the one that um, houses the city of Boston, among other jurisdictions, looked kind of like a salamander. And so they called it a gerrymander instead of a salamander. And so that is that is who we have to thank. Thank you, Governor Jerry, for employing troves and troves and armies of lawyers and um, activists to try to solve this issue. With me in the studio and by phone are two leaders and experts who will shed light on this issue and hopefully tell us what the path forward is for this very important issue. I'm very excited to have them both here with me. Paul Smith, the Vice President of Litigation and Strategy with Campaign Legal Center in Washington, D.C., and Katie Fahey, who founded Voters Not Politicians, which is a grassroots campaign that passed redistricting reform this past year in Michigan. Paul and Katie, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you. Happy to be here. Hello. So glad to be here. Great. Well, so gerrymandering. Now, Paul, this issue has been going on since 1812. Tell us now how you would describe the issue of gerrymandering to someone you just met at a dinner party. Well, it's a way of uh, drawing the lines for congressional districts or legislative districts that favors one party and disfavors the other, helps one party turn its votes into seats and keeps the other party from doing so with the same degree of efficiency. How does it do that? Well, it takes the disfavored party's voters and packs them into a few districts where they might be 80 or 90 percent uh, of that party and then spreads the rest of them out, so-called cracks them uh, into the other districts where they can't win. And if you do that, it's very easy to take a 50-50 jurisdiction and turn it into maybe a 65-35 result in the legislature. So, for example, in contrast to, let's say, if a, if a state has to split its jurisdictions into counties, basically, you know, like if you look at a map of any state and you'll see the counties are basically a grid. 
But with legislative districts, with electoral districts, sometimes you have these crazy shapes, right? Not just salamanders, but W's or, you know, these these snake shapes. So give us some examples of the results of this in some jurisdictions. Well, I mean, if you look at some of the cases that have been litigated in the last few years and gone up to the Supreme Court, the one I argued in 2017 was a, the, the Gill versus Whitford. It was the Wisconsin Assembly, and that was a very skillful gerrymander done in, in 2011 that essentially guaranteed a two-to-one advantage for the Republicans, regardless of how people vote, uh, in good years and bad blue wave, not a blue wave. There's almost no shift at all between uh, the number of, of seats that the Republicans held there because the uh, gerrymander was done right. A, a similar example is the North Carolina case that was just decided by the Supreme Court where they decided quite openly in 2016 to draw a map with 10 Republicans and three Democrats going to Congress from North Carolina. They said, we're doing this on purpose and we think we're going to get away with it. And they did. Right. And to that point, in fact, um, politicians even boast about it. I mean, they're very, very transparent. So the fact both Republicans and Democrats will do this to preserve their partisan advantage. Uh, I want to play a clip for you listeners from the 2017 hearing in the North Carolina State Legislature that Paul was just talking about. So what you're going to hear is a Democratic state senator questioning the fairness of a proposed map that was drawn by Republicans. And then you're going to hear State Representative David Lewis give his answer as to why he drew the boundaries in the manner that he did. So I'm I'm trying to understand why you feel this would be fair, reasonable, and balanced in terms of voter registrations in this state as it is currently divided. Thank you for the question, Senator. I propose that we draw the maps to give a partisan advantage to 10 Republicans and three Democrats because I do not believe it's possible to draw a map with 11 Republicans and two Democrats. (laughs) Well, this issue has been going on since 1812. And why do you think recently, in the last few years, it's gotten more traction? Well, the, the gerrymanders have become uh, more severe and more effective. The reasons for that are multiple. People are now more predictable. People don't go back and forth between the parties as much as they used to. Of course, the computers and the software are, are a lot more better than they used to be. And so you used to see people try to gerrymander, and then in a bad year, their party might lose and the whole thing might flip over. But that doesn't seem to be happening anymore in the current age. And uh, it's really a result of the political conditions in the country and the computers. So, Katie, let's turn to you. Your journey into the world of gerrymandering started on November 10th, 2016, Right. Just two days after the 2016 election, Uh, you who I should say for our listeners, Katie is very young. She is a young activist. Uh, She's incredibly impressive and has achieved enormous success in in Michigan. So we're very proud of her. You posted a simple message on Facebook and that message read, I'd like to take on gerrymandering in Michigan. If you're interested in doing this as well, please let me know. Tell us what happened when you posted that message. Yes, and the message did have a smiley face emoji at the end as well, which I... Well, of course, because, you know, you're 28. Exactly. I'm convinced that is the key to saving democracy, emojis. 
You know, I had always been politically active, although did not work in the political field at all. I paid attention to local elections. And so I'm used to putting things online that, you know, I get one or two friends who also pay attention to the drain commissioner races. But this post was different. I went to work and about the middle of the day, it's lunchtime. I'm checking Facebook with my coworker and I was like, oh my gosh, there are a lot of people who want to help end gerrymandering. And it turns out that that post had been shared um, into some different private Facebook groups. And I had all these people who I had no idea who they were. They were virtual strangers messaging me saying, hey, I've cared about this issue for a really long time. I'm so glad you're doing something about it. Let me know how I can help. Why gerrymandering? Why not, you know, voter registration or some of the other issues that are a little bit more uh, popular, for lack of a better word? Yeah, for a couple of reasons. Um, One, I had a lot of friends who felt like when they went to vote, their votes didn't matter. And I still felt like it was very important that we do go and vote, especially with local elections. But to some extent, they were right. Gerrymandering makes it so that our votes don't count as much as they should. So what is it that you needed to do in order to change this in your state? Yeah. So thankfully in Michigan, we do have the right to petition our government in order to bring a ballot question to the people of Michigan. So if you can write constitutional language and then gather a lot of signatures, for us, it was 315,654 registered Michigan voter signatures in 180 days, then you can take that constitutional language that you're proposing and actually put it up to the general electorate. So you don't need the legislature to approve it. Just the people of our state can actually vote. Yes, we want this or no, we don't want this. And that's what you did. So from 2016 until the election of 2018, you spent your time canvassing and organizing and getting people mobilized to vote in favor of this issue. Yeah, I mean, we had to, I I was certainly not an expert and none of us really were. So we had to figure out how do you actually write constitutional language? And we actually went around our state. We did 33 town halls in 33 days asking the people of Michigan what they thought a fair solution would be or if they liked the status quo where politicians were drawing their own district lines. We went to every single congressional district twice. And what was really exciting is that every community we went to, whether it was rural or urban, whether it was the top of our state or at the bottom of our state, we had standing room only hundreds of citizens and ultimately thousands of citizens at those town hall meetings who are really hungry to be listened to and also to be asked their input on what would a fair system look like to them. And you found a way to do it. Prop 2, which was your ballot initiative, passed 6138 statewide, including 65 out of 83 counties, 48 of which voted for Trump in 2016. Now, that's one way to pass legislation at the state level is the ballot initiative. Often we look to courts to establish parameters as to what is and isn't constitutional, what is and isn't permissible within the rubric of even what legislatures do. Uh, Paul, I'd like to turn to you and talk about the legal landscape for gerrymandering. Help us understand how we got to where we are. What has been the trajectory of this issue in the federal courts Well, I should say I worked on a series of cases asking the Supreme Court to do something about gerrymandering going back to 2004, a case I argued then involving the Pennsylvania congressional map, and then in a series of cases since then, Texas, Wisconsin, uh, most recently North Carolina. And what's been interesting about this issue in the Supreme Court is the court has no doubt 
the gerrymandering is unconstitutional. It pretty much has to be unconstitutional because it's the government rigging the democracy in favor of one point of view and against another point of view. It's hard to imagine anything that is more against the, the basic commitments of our constitution than the government doing that. But what has been the barrier has been this uh, rather obscure doctrine called the political question doctrine, or sometimes it's called justiciability. There have been justices going all the way back to the 80s who have argued that this issue is too hard for the Supreme Court because the court has always thought we have to allow a certain amount of politics in the process once we give line drawing to politicians in the legislature. We can't expect them to be completely pure and not even think about politics when they do this. And so we're going to allow a little bit of politics as usual. And the effect of that is that means you have to, at least uh, some justices have thought, draw a line between kind of okay amount of political abuse and too much, and that the court has felt like that's a hard line uh, to draw. Uh, And so in a series of cases over the years, the court has said, well, we're not going to give you a victory. We're not going to invalidate this, but come back again and try uh, with a better formula that will help us draw that line. Justice Kennedy was kind of the intermediate guy saying, you're not going to win, but I'm not going to foreclose your winning in the future. Uh, and so we kept trying. <laughs> right, so that was the case, the the, the case where Kennedy uh, sent that message, that right. kind of, you know, the message that was cryptic to some, blatant to others, that, uh, you know, get me a better case, get me clear. some better yeah. facts. And that was the Pennsylvania yeah. case back in 2004, Veith versus Jubilee. And so people spent the next 10 years trying to come up with new formulas, new ways of arguing it, because if you can quantify the degree of bias in the map, then you can figure out how to draw the line. And, of course, we're talking about... Uh, political gerrymandering, yes. not not racial gerrymandering, which is blatantly unconstitutional. It isn't established as such. So if you draw congressional districts uh, that look like a salamander or like a W or like some, you know, crazy leopard, and you can prove, you as a plaintiff can prove that, that these districts were created in that way to punish or bias a minority, a racial minority. That is that is blatantly unconstitutional. But the problem here, of course, is that there's a somewhat strong correlation between racial issues and political issues, and they play out in the same way and have the same consequence. Right. And so sometimes the lawyers in past cases have used racial theories when they're really attacking a political gerrymander because that's been easier to win in court. But in some states, the problem is just naked politics. Uh, you know, not it's not done uh, through a racial lens. And ultimately, we hoped that we could convince five justices to draw a line, not to fi- not to say everything has to be perfect, but at least the extreme outliers uh, ought to be unconstitutional. And one of the things that we came up with in, in, in the most recent cases was we can ask a computer to draw 10,000 maps that are all consistent with every criteria in the state says it values that are all consistent with the geography of the state. The only thing that they don't have is political bias in them. And you can take that series of 10,000 maps and compare it to what was actually drawn by the legislature. And if it's, you know, if, if as occurred in North Carolina, not a single one of those maps is as biased as the one that the legislature drew, then you know this is, a, this is an extreme outlier. The court was, as you mentioned, Paul, struggling very much with where do you draw the line? So obviously, if it's presented with a racial bias case, it has a much easier time creating that bright line. It seemed to, a lot of the language of the discussions in the cases that that were recently before the court were about, well, how do we know how much politicking is enough? There's the elections clause of the Constitution, which says this is really the problem of state legislatures or of legislatures to draw congressional districts. What is the court's role? 
it seemed that that was really a sticking point for that uh, for that discussion. So what? It's hard for me because I don't really think it's all that hard. I mean, I right. think once you can decide that that a map is unfair to a particular racial group, it's not really very different in a, in kind to decide that a map is too unfair to a particular political group. The the the, the basic showing is pretty much uh, the same. But the threshold is different, right? Well, not really. Even even race in, in line drawing, district line drawing, you can consider race. Indeed, you're obligated to consider race in order to be fair, to make sure that, that the minority in a, in a racially polarized state is getting a fair shot. So it's not true that in, in line drawing, all consideration of race is unconstitutional. It's too much. And the Supreme Court has said only when it predominates is it unconstitutional. And so there's a kind of a vague line in the racial cases. Uh, And essentially what we told them was you should draw a similar line here and say, you know, when it gets to be too political, too biased, courts will know how to draw that line just as they already do in the race cases. But they but they struggled with well, what does it mean to be too political and too biased? They they struggle they, and so there were just, all these theories, you know, there's there was the uh, the efficiency theory, yeah. there were the uh, there there were different sort of approaches as to how you can quantify right. the level of political bias yeah. in these gerrymandering Right. Cases. These are the formulas that people came up with in response to that challenge from Justice Kennedy way back in 2004. It said, give me a better way to, to quantify it. And so people did. And the court said, no, yeah, not good enough. Five to four in the, in the Rucho case in, in June, uh, the court said, we just don't think that we can overcome this concern about justiciability. It's unconstitutional what happened in North Carolina, what happened in Maryland, but we're not going to give you a remedy. This is not something that the federal courts can fix. It's too hard for us to draw that line. It was a very, uh, very uh, uh, forceful dissent from uh, four justices, the four more liberal justices, written by Justice Kagan, in which she said, "Give me a break. You know, look at these facts. Whatever, the, wherever the line is, these are so far over the line that we shouldn't allow our democracy to be debased to this extent. And you're you're really leaving the pathway open for people to just be totally abusive uh, in." in the next round, which is, of course, going to happen in 2021 after the census, all the maps in America have to be redone. And in fact, uh, Justice Kagan broke from convention a bit and uh, closed her dissent by saying, with great sadness, I respectfully dissent from this opinion, which for practitioners like yourselves who interpret language very, very tightly, that sent a, a very strong signal. Indeed. So, Paul, one question I had when reading the cases and sort of reading the aftermath of the cases is that one of the arguments of the of the court, of the majority, was that states can deal with this in their own way, right? The legislature should deal with this in their own way, and they have, in fact. They've passed ballot initiatives like the one that Katie worked on so successfully. They've passed redistricting commissions. They've established redistricting commissions that take away the, the power of uh, redistricting from the legislature and put it in the hands of a nonpartisan or bipartisan body that is tasked with creating these legislative districts. But the validity of those commissions was, in fact, also debated pretty heavily at the Supreme Court not too long ago. ago. It was a five to four decision to uphold the redistricting commission that was before the Supreme Court. And arguably, that majority would go the other way with um, now that Justice Kavanaugh's on the court. So, on one hand, the you know the Supreme Court is saying, "Go ahead, states, deal with it your way." You know, you even have this alternative, which is a redistricting commission that has been passed by citizens like Katie. But it might be like you know, it's likely that if that same issue rose to the Supreme Court again, 
those commissions themselves would be would would be invalidated. Okay, well, let me unpack a couple of things there. Uh, first of all, I, I, I do think that commissions is the best solution. Things like Michigan now has, or because they don't just put some outer limits on gerrymandering. They give the power to a completely neutral body. The first problem is only about half the states have the ability to get things on the ballot the way Katie did, uh, with just getting signatures. In many, many other states, you need to get the proposed constitutional amendment passed twice by the legislature itself. And telling the legislature to do something about gerrymandering is like telling the fox to guard the hen house. There's just simply not going to happen, right? So in those states, you have a very severe political barrier to doing that. In Michigan, you know, we when we were first figuring out, do we do a ballot initiative? Do we do a lawsuit? Do we work with the legislature? Our research said that over the last really 30 years, over 11 bills had been introduced by our legislature. But when Democrats were in charge of gerrymandering, Republicans were doing it. When Republicans are in charge of gerrymandering, Democrats were the only ones introducing legislation. And it had never been adopted. So it was pretty clear that our legislature wasn't interested in giving themselves less power to trust people to draw these lines instead. And so I I think even in Michigan, where we had the other alternative, we couldn't have worked with the legislature. It was very clear that they hadn't had interest for for many years. What's happening, of course, is as Katie's movement in Michigan illustrates, the people are getting more and more upset about this. And if the court keeps cutting off options, it's going to be a very interesting political situation. The ultimate solution may have to be in Congress which does have the power ultimately to fix this problem, especially as to congressional districts. We'd have to be a different Congress than the one we have now. So let's talk about solutions, because after all, we are all in the business of getting to yes, right? We're all in the business of making the the country better, making the world better. And there is a path forward here. You know, in our our wave a magic wand and make everything better world, we would have a congressional act that would create some sanity with respect to how congressional districts are drawn. But really, a lot of the game is going to be in the states. Well, but, you know, in H.R. 1 passed the House this year. It does contain, that's the, the big omnibus election reform uh, measure that the Democrats put in. And it has a whole provision of, uh, to require states to draw their districts in a nonpartisan way for congressional. Uh, and, in a, you know, if things go politically in a different direction in 2020, I can certainly imagine that provision or something like it passing in 2021 uh, and uh, changing the game. Because ultimately, that if the court won't let won't fix it itself and won't let people have commissions. Congress can mandate commissions, and that will certainly ultimately be something the court will have to accept. Right, and let's hope that there's enough outrage bubbling up from grassroots communities that that issue is taken up. But in fact, in states, we've seen a number of states that are that are engaged in you know in reform right now. There is a flurry of activity, both upcoming in 2019 and even in the even in 2018. We've seen successful efforts in Colorado, Missouri, Ohio, Utah, of course, Michigan. We've had um, we've had more activity in Pennsylvania. We've seen pending action, or we're going to see uh, pending action. At least it's in the works in places like New Hampshire, Arkansas, New Jersey, Oklahoma, Virginia. So you know this. Is, so this is really moving. So Katie, let's go back to you and talk about what it takes to succeed at the state level. What advice would you give to activists in all of these states that are now cooking up, whether it's a ballot initiative or a legislative initiative? Talk about the lessons you learned and what advice you'd give. 
One thing that we continued to hear when when we were first starting this, you know, just regular people on Facebook, we started reaching out to a lot of the groups who um, had been working on helping provide education around gerrymandering for years, doing really great work. But a lot of them said, you know, the average person just isn't interested in this. But what we were seeing is that actually, once we had an action we could take with this, once we said, hey, we want to do something about this, but we need a lot of help, we saw thousands of people who were engaged. And then when we went to gather signatures and we were talking to neighbors on the street. Maybe not all of them knew what gerrymandering was, but we said, you know, are you happy with the state of politics? Do you feel like your politician listens to you? And pretty much the resounding uh, answer across the entire state of Michigan was, no, I'm not happy with the state of politics. I don't feel like anybody is looking out for me. I don't think decisions are being made that really are reflective of my community. I'm more concerned about my politician being being beholden to somebody else, some kind of larger interest, and I'm tired of it. And so first, know that other people do care about this and that there are ways to do things about this. The other thing, too, I think, is going in knowing that there's a lot of different ways that you can solve this issue. There isn't just one solution. I think if I would have come in and been like, I'm Katie Fahey and I know the exact way to end gerrymandering, we would have lost. Um, not because maybe my idea wasn't good, but because this offers a really big opportunity to go and talk to other people in your state about a really fundamental issue in elections, which is how our votes should be counted and how representation should look in the state capitol and in Washington. Washington, D.C. And the last thing I would say is that even if maybe you don't have a ballot initiative option, the legislative option is great. Bringing a lawsuit um, can help attack the current set of maps. But even just paying attention and making sure that you're you know these lines are going to be drawn no matter what. So showing up and talking to your representative, finding out when the hearings are, demanding answers for why a line would be drawn one way versus another and talking to friends and family about that. And it seems to me that uh, making the connection for people as to why they should care about this issue, that it isn't it isn't just about one election. It's about the fact that by not caring, by expressing apathy or by buying into the system, you're de facto surrendering your vote and you are contributing to, you know, a system where politicians only care about their base and only care about extremist voters and only care about maintaining their incumbent status and don't care about where many of our our citizens are, which is at the center. You see that in Wisconsin where they had that the two-to-one assembly for the past 10 years. They've been passing legislation that doesn't begin to reflect the center of where people are politically in Wisconsin, anti-union things and a whole variety of other very, very conservative things because they reflect what's in the legislature, but the re- legislature doesn't reflect the people. And that's that's the real problem. There's, it, it cuts off democracy. And of course, now with much better technology, technology improving every day, we can now identify categories of voters more clearly. Katie, talk a bit about what you see as um, the influence of technology on gerrymandering in the future. Yeah, I see it only getting worse and more extreme. You know, credit cards gather information on us. Internet gathers information on us. The census obviously is supposed to. They take all that information so that they can literally go down one block and figure out this family votes Republican, this family votes Democrat. So let's move those individual seats or even target where their opponent lives and say, okay, I'm really scared that they're going to beat me. So let me draw them out of the district. And they find out a couple months, you know, before the election and then they have to run. There's one example in Michigan. It's a set of house districts. It's actually near where I live. It's three house districts on one street with eight houses on it. 
There are eight houses and three different districts. And when we talk to the families on that street, their kids go on the same school bus. When they did have a concern about their local school district, they had to go and talk to three different representatives and hope that they cared about their little piece of their wider districts, which they ended up not getting any results and nobody calling them back for any of those neighbors on that one street. And that's the human impact of this. We can't actually even look to our government to care uh, when these districts get this uh, divided and when the politicians look at us like we're just Democrats or Republican little dots on a map. So let's conclude on an optimistic note. And I'm going to ask each of you the same question. What gives you optimism about our collective ability to put an end to gerrymandering and address this problem. Paul, so let's start with you. Well, part of it is I think that the American people are much more aware of this problem and much more uh, worried about it than they were 15 years ago. When I first argued that Pennsylvania case, I didn't have any notice at all. There was no press coverage. It was nothing. But now, in the age we in, we're in now, people are extremely worried about their democracy. And so, so eventually that has to translate into a solution. Uh, and th- however many ways the court thinks of to cut off solutions, uh, the Congress is still going to be there. Katie, what gives you optimism? You know, I used to never think that one person could really make that big of an impact. And in some ways, I think I still think that. But what I saw is that one post can lead to two people, which can lead to a couple hundred people, which can lead to a couple thousand, and then ultimately 2.5 million voting yes to change our democracy. In Michigan, we saw uh, people in all 83 counties volunteering their time, their energy, their money, their talent for over a year and a half when everybody was saying, we had no chance to win. And from that, we saw a bunch of people learn that they do have more power than they think, even though they were feeling really distressed about the state of the world. Uh, and and that continues to give me a lot of hope. And I think, Katie, uh, we'll just close with this thought. that I, I think the name of your organization says it all about the movement, that it is about voters it's not about politicians. So it's not about whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. And, you know, a lot of the a lot of the, the rationale for gerrymandering is actually in some sort of twisted way, kind of good faith, right? I mean, a lot of these politicians really think that the Democratic Party or the Republican Party is a better steward for legislation and for the population than their opponents because they are so polarized or because they are so entrenched in their beliefs. But the point is that it's not about them. It's about us as the voters, and we should all foster a system where the voters are the ones that dictate who the politicians are, not the other way around. So we are so proud of your work. Paul, we're so thankful for your work, and we are thrilled to have had this discussion on Deep Dive. So thank you both so much for being with me today. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. You've been listening to Deep Dive with Laura Arnold, produced by the Arnold Ventures Philanthropy. If you'd like to learn more about the organization, visit arnoldventures.org. By maximizing opportunity and minimizing injustice, we make change for the greater good. Again, that website is arnoldventures.org. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you again next time on Deep Dive. Deep Dive.